So for some context, this passage is read every week, every year, this week on Palm Sunday. It's the whole reason we celebrate Easter. It's the journey towards Jesus' crucifixion and subsequent resurrection. It's covered in all four Gospels, and in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it's at this point in the Bible that it really slows down to emphasize the significance of this moment. So what do we have here? Well, Jesus and his disciples are on their way to Jerusalem, and Jesus asks his disciples to go into a nearby village and steal a donkey. And he says, if anyone asks you what you're doing, just say, Jesus needs them. So the disciples have gone into a village, they've stolen a donkey, they bring it back to Jesus, and he begins to ride the donkey into Jerusalem. So what you've got here is a crowd start gathering around them. Everyone's there to celebrate because the Jewish people have come to celebrate Passover festival in Jerusalem. So the crowds start um, coming around Jesus and they're worshipping him and they're praising him and they're laying their cloaks in front of him to make a makeshift red carpet essentially. And what are they shouting? They're shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna is a Hebrew word for save us. So essentially they're saying, save us, son of David. And they're also shouting, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. And then Matthew tells us that as they enter Jerusalem, the whole city is stirred. But stirred is quite a polite way of putting it because the actual translation is shaken. The whole city is shaken. They are literally saying, who is this? Who is this? It's a big entrance. But what does all this mean? What is the story about? Well, unsurprisingly, the commentary of Matthew that Matthew provides when he quotes the Old Testament is crucial so as to understand the significance of what's going on here. He says in verse 5, All this took place so as to fulfill the prophecy, See, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey. Your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey. Now, I've broken this down into three things to help us um, understand what this means. Firstly, Jesus is getting in our face. Secondly, he's doing this riding a donkey. And thirdly, he's doing all of this to turn us into palm trees. I appreciate that that might need some further explaining. So let's just start with number one. Jesus is in your face. Or as Matthew puts it, Jesus is king. This is easily the most confrontational moment in the life and ministry of Jesus. In order to understand just how confrontational, we need to appreciate the dramatic context. So right before Jesus makes this triumphant entry into Jerusalem in chapter 20 of Matthew, he tells us about a healing that Jesus performs in a nearby town. Two blind men are sitting by the road, and as they hear Jesus passing by, they shout to him, Son of David, have mercy on us. The crowd immediately rebuke them and tell them to shut up. But the blind men shout even louder, Son of David, have mercy on us. At which point Jesus hears them and says, what do you want me to do for you? They say, we want our sight. And he touches their eyes, and they're healed. Now, this could easily be mistaken for another miracle that we obviously see frequently happening throughout the New Testament. But that would be a mistake. 
It's a mistake because everyone who would have overheard this exchange between Jesus and the blind man would have gasped when he allowed himself to be addressed as the son of David. Why? Because the son of David was reserved exclusively for the widely prophesied about and desperately longed for Messiah, the final king of Israel, a king who the Jewish people believed would save them once again from slavery and rule over the entire world for eternity. So two blind men sitting by the side of the road say, ultimate king of heaven, have mercy on us. And Jesus said, yes, what can I do for you? The disciples would have panicked. The crowd would have gasped. Jesus, in one moment, has gone from a man, albeit an incredible man with amazing power, to a man claiming to be the Messiah, the ultimate savior and king of the world. Sorry, I'm having a notes nightmare. I'm just going to lose them. So it's off the back of this event that Jesus enters Jerusalem. And what's fascinating about our passage is rather than attempting to alleviate the tension this event must have caused, he's actually upping the ante. He's ramping it up another level. He seems to be orchestrating this event to make as much impact as possible. It's also worth mentioning that the village that he took the donkeys from is really significant because it's close by to where Mary and Martha and Lazarus live. And as we've previously seen, Jesus has just raised Lazarus from the dead. So imagine if you go into a village where this has just happened and you steal a donkey and are asked what you're doing and you say Jesus needs them, then they're probably going to let you off. And this also helps us understand where these crowds have come from. These people already know what Jesus is capable of. They've seen his miracles. They've seen his power. So the point is this. Jesus is orchestrating this whole arrival to get in the face of Jerusalem. He is staging a confrontation. But why does he want to get in their face? He wants to get in their face because he wants to evoke a response. The arrival of someone claiming to be king demands a response. This is why the whole city is shaken. And the only response possible for the Jewish authorities are to crown him as king or crucify him as an imposter. So I wonder, have you noticed Jesus getting in your face? I remember the first time this ever happened in my life. As I mentioned earlier, I didn't grow up in a Christian home. So around the age of 21, I, I made friends with a group of Christians. I'd never actually met Christians before, I don't recall. And subsequently, I ended up doing an Alpha course. And I heard the evidence for the resurrection. And I heard the meaning that Jesus attributes to his death on a cross. And I reached the point that he demanded a response. Either conclude he's God and become a Christian or conclude he's dead and reject him as a fraud. There was no longer any room for any talk about Jesus being a good moral teacher who says really nice things about sparrows. He demanded a response. So have you noticed him getting in your face? Even for those of us that would consider ourselves a Christian, he's still getting in our face. Because if we truly believe he's the king of the universe, then there's only one possible response to make. You, you have to submit your life to him and totally surrender. This means, and I'm saying this as much to myself as anyone else, there is no space for lukewarm Christianity. It's not really an option. 
This means we can't simply accessorize our lives with a bit of Jesus on Sundays and tag our faith alongside our careers and our finances and our relationships. Because if Jesus is king, he's not just someone we pray to when we're in trouble. Instead, he's our ultimate authority. Unfortunately, he leaves no other option. Now, I realize, even as I'm saying this, this is deeply uncomfortable. And the truth is that surrendering our lives to Jesus is an ongoing process. It's a decision that we have to make day in, day out. Sometimes we're good at it, and sometimes we're bad at it. But Jesus doesn't get up in our face to make us feel guilty. But he is asking us to do it. So let's look at this idea of submission, because it feels like it's actually a bit of a dirty word. For many of us, the idea of submitting to authority can make us feel sick to our core. Either we've had abusive experiences of authority, we've been manipulated, and there might be many, many reasons, and all of them really valid for why this is a hard thing to do. But on a deeper level, I think we also hate the idea of submission because core to the human condition is a desire and thirst for total independence. To put it in the context of the passage, to be the king of our own lives. In our home, this comes up mostly in the kitchen, where we both fancy ourselves like master chef, champion of Catford. Um, We both want to be king of what we eat and when we eat and how we eat and how it's prepared. Um, So we can no longer both be in the kitchen at the same time. It's like a fast rule in our house. I appreciate this is a really jovial example, but it illustrates the point, I think, that we all want to be our own king. We all have a desire to do whatever we want for the benefit of me, myself, and I. But back to the passage. Jesus enters Jerusalem. He's orchestrated events to get in the face of Jewish authorities and demands a response. Crown me or kill me. And he is still in the business of getting in our face. He's still demanding a response. Either we reject him or we submit our entire lives to him. There are really no options in between. So let's just consider who it is that we're being asked to submit to here. Because if Jesus is getting in our face... Why is he doing it riding on a donkey? What on earth is the donkey all about? So let's put ourselves in the shoes of the disciples. These guys have spent three years traveling around with Jesus. They know what he's capable of doing. And when Jesus asks Peter who he thinks he is, he says, you're the Messiah. You're our savior, the final king of the world. And so the disciples are actually desperate for Jesus to reveal himself. The problem was, whenever they suggested this plan to him, he would always respond with a weird, mysterious statement about suffering or dying. And so imagine their excitement when Jesus finally publicly reveals himself as the messianic king. He says to the disciples, we're marching into Jerusalem, and then imagine their confusion and disappointment when he says he's going to do it riding a donkey. Kings don't ride donkeys. Kings ride mighty steeds. Who rides a donkey? So what does this mean? Again, Matthew provides really helpful commentary using the prophecy. He says in verse 5, your king comes to you gently and riding on a donkey. He's coming gently. He's coming to serve with kindness, with love, with mercy. He doesn't come as a dictator looking for minions to submit to his rule. 
He comes with the primary motive to serve those who come under his authority. Donkeys are ridden by servants. And so how does he serve? He serves by performing the greatest act of love the world has ever witnessed. The donkey is symbolism for what's about to happen. If you ride into battle on a donkey, you are going to get slaughtered. Unless this was always the plan. And Jesus had a plan. The problem with the crowd surrounding him and cheering him on was that they thought he was coming to set them free from the oppression of the Roman Empire, when instead he was actually coming to save them from themselves. He'd come to save them from something far more profound and meaningful than the impression of an empire lasting 1,500 years. Instead, he came to deliver them from a slavery lasting into eternity because he'd come to declare war not on the Romans but on sin and evil and death. His war cry, of which the resurrection of Lazarus was a foretaste, is I am the resurrection and the life. And he breaks the power of everything opposed to this fulfillment of his vision by being slaughtered without any justification, taking upon himself the sin, our desire to be king, the evil of the world and the stranglehold of death, and then defeating once and for all with death and resurrection. So if our desire deep down is to be king of our lives, then the desire of Jesus, the real king, the only justified king, is to bring salvation to us by becoming our servant. Paul puts it like this in one of his letters. Jesus, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And it's his death on the cross that opens the way for us to experience the fullness of life that comes when we're in unrestricted relationship with the ultimate king and creator of the universe. A relationship that can even save us beyond the grip of death. And so for those of us constantly battling this desire to be our own king, whether we're at the point in our lives where we've started to unravel because we've come to the realization that we're really not very good at it, or we've become completely exhausted because we constantly are trying and striving to be that king. The offer from Jesus is this. If we surrender our lives to him, he'll take the burden. He'll be king, so we don't have to be. And more than that, his kingship is characterized by selfless drive to love us. To do all the things we wish we could in our own strength, but we're too weak to get it done. His power is made perfect in our weakness. And for those of us who have had an abusive and oppressive experiences of coming under authority, for those of us whose skin crawl at the mention of the word submission, the difference with Jesus is that he has come to submit, to surrender, to serving us. He isn't just in our face as king. He comes gently with kindness and with love and with an unconditional and radical commitment to serving us so that we become the people that we were created to be. Which brings me on to my final point, palm trees. Jesus is in our face, but he's doing it riding on a donkey, and the whole purpose is to make us into palm trees. Why palm trees? On one level, they symbolize victory. It's recorded in history that the Jewish people have waved them before a savior figure who has marched into Jerusalem to save the nation from oppression. 
And so here we are with Jesus, rather than symbolizing victory over Roman oppression, the palms symbolize victory over sin and death and Satan. But there's actually a deeper symbolic significance going on here. The people waving the palms probably wouldn't have known this, but there's a thread throughout the Bible that talks about the fact when Jesus comes as king, the whole of creation is going to come alive. It's all over the Psalms. Psalm 96 says, Let the heavens rejoice, let the earth be glad, let the sea resound and all that's in it. Let the fields be jubilant and everything in them. Let all the trees of the forest sing for joy. Let all creation rejoice before the Lord, for he comes. And Israel 50, Isaiah 55, 12 says, You will go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and hills will burst into song before you and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. So what we're told is when the kingdom of Jesus comes on earth, as it is in heaven, the world bursts into life. It's obviously poetic language, but the point is this. This world was created to be so much more than we see. The mountains and the hills will sing. The trees will applaud. And so the palms being waved as Jesus enters Jerusalem are not just about victory over death. They're also a foretaste of the life promised to creation when Jesus is crowned as king. The point for us is if the whole creation is going to come alive in the presence of Jesus, how much more are we, humanity, the pinnacle of God's creative process, also going to burst into life, become so much more than we already are, be transformed and renewed. When we experience the kingdom and rule and reign of Jesus, the power of his presence causes us to burst into life. We are going to pray now. Um, this is what we're doing when we have ministry. We're opening ourselves up to the presence of the king. He's always present. He's always in our face. He never leaves. But so often we have to choose to open ourselves up so we can see and experience his power. And his power, although it's gentle, is the most transformative experience of our lives. Shall we stand to pray?